Have you ever had a true moral struggle, a decision that you had to make? When you know what you ought to do, but you know it's going to hurt you personally, or it's going to impact some people that you care about in a pretty dramatic way. You know, I have a friend the, uh, who went to the bank the other day to cash a check, and he, uh, when he got the money back, he had several $100 bills. When he got home, he divided up the money. He realized that he had an extra $100. The teller had made a mistake in his favor. And as he thought about that, he had to decide what he was going to do, and he really could have used the money. But once he had confirmed for sure that he had too much money, he called the bank up, and he told the teller to call him at the end of the day if he was short. I'll tell you, that was one happy teller. When his day was over, he tallied up his drawer and realized he was $100 short, and my friend showed up with the money. You know, that may seem to be a really simple choice for you, and hopefully it would be, but all of us are going to be called upon to make a difficult choice at some point in our life that's going to affect us personally. And it may be much more than $100. But you know what? Sometimes the decision is even greater than that. It has even greater repercussions. In fact, it could even impact a person's life. Today we're going to be talking about a man who experienced a major struggle, a moral struggle in his heart that led to the death of another individual. And not just any man, not just any person, but Jesus, the Son of God. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Pilate, who was the governor of Judea in Jesus' day. As we have been on this journey to the cross, we talked about how Jesus was taken. He was arrested in the garden. A couple of weeks ago, we mentioned that. Then last week, uh, Zach did a great job talking about Peter while the, Jesus was being interrogated and tried by the Jewish leaders of that day. And at this point in our study, we've gotten to the place where they have already had their trial, where they brought Jesus in, interrogated him through the night. They accused him. They attacked him. They mocked him. And their conclusion was already predetermined, but they decided that Jesus was guilty and deserved to die. Now, you might ask for what reason they wanted to put him to death. And the answer was very simple, that they really were just envious of him, and they refused to acknowledge that he truly was the Son of God who he claimed to be. That was enough in their minds for this man to die. They made their own moral choice, and they made quite a mistake. But after they had had their own mock trial and sentenced Jesus to die, the next step was to make it truly official, which had to be done through the Roman government. See, in that day, while the Jewish authorities had a lot of control and a lot of power, only the Romans could really put someone to death. And so here we find we're in John chapter 18, and we find that Jesus is now transferred from the, Roman, from the Jewish trial to the Roman trial. So let's pick up the verses there, beginning with verse 28 of John 18. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. But now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Now Pilate didn't know a lot about Jesus, more than likely, but Pilate had tried a lot of men in his time, and he had sentenced many of them to die. And this Jewish rabbi really did not fit the mold of everybody else who had been before him. No one else appeared to be so calm and so innocent as this man. But he agreed to try him as he would any other person. Keep in mind that Pilate did not like the Jewish leaders. He did not care for them at all. And in fact, they made his job more difficult because they would not even enter the palace. We read a few moments ago, it was Passover week, and it was a holy week for them, 
and they did not want to be uh, made unclean so they would not come in contact with these Roman Gentiles. I think that alone was an insult to Pilate, so he kind of had an attitude toward them to start with. So because of this difficulty, he had to keep going in and out. In fact, three different times in the record, it says that Pilate went out to talk to them, went back into the court, went out, went in. It was really difficult for him. I think he got really tired of messing with them. But he brought these accusations against Jesus. They accused Jesus uh, legally of perverting the nation, forbidding the people to pay taxes, and calling himself a king. Now, Pilate didn't really care about their religious issues, only those that could truly affect the Roman government. So he questioned Jesus, and he quickly comes to the conclusion that Jesus is innocent. In fact, I believe that Jesus' answers, like all of his uh, teaching, were intriguing to Pilate. He was talking about a heavenly kingdom, certainly nothing there that would impact the Roman kingdom on earth. And it was obvious to him very quickly that these Jewish leaders were just envious of Jesus and just wanted him out of the way. You know, kind of reading between the lines, I suspect that Pilate, if he had not been in such a difficult place legally and could have truly been objective, might have even been open to listening to what Jesus had to say. There was no time for him to consider the message of Jesus and about this heavenly kingdom. He was focused on the political right thing to do. His first inclination was to let Jesus go, no doubt. But again, there were politics involved in this whole thing. History says that Pilate had already been in trouble with the Roman uh, government before, that he'd already had some conflict with those above him. See, Rome just wanted peace. They just wanted these Jews who they ruled over just to be kept down, for any rebellion to be, uh, to be put down. So there was no way they were going to deal with conflict and give there any, any reason for them to rebel against the Roman powers. And so from that perspective, it would be very easy for Pilate just to go along with them. Let them have their way. Just go ahead, sign off to crucify this man who didn't seem to have a lot of strength anyway. The Romans killed plenty of men. Many of them, no doubt, were innocent, but they didn't care. They just got rid of the problem. Their philosophy was this, kill them all, let the gods sort them out sometime. But I believe there was something different, even in Pilate's eyes, about this one that just didn't feel right. So he had this internal struggle inside of him, not wanting to go along with these other Jewish leaders he didn't like anyway. But also another issue came up, and that was mid-morning, Pilate's wife showed up to court. She never came to bother him or intrude in his work, and, and she showed up, but she said, Pilate, I've had a dream about this man, and you need to let him go. You need to set him free. So he's got Jewish leaders on one side trying to convince him to put Jesus to death. He's got his wife on the other side saying, he's an innocent man, let him go. He's in the middle, and he has a struggle. Does he go with his gut feeling, his heart, this man is innocent, or does he give in to the pressure around him? Now, we know the story, of course, that Pilate made a decision later on to crucify Jesus. But I think it's also interesting in the middle of this dilemma to realize that Pilate tries to avoid making a decision at all. In fact, there are three ways he tries to avoid this. First of all, he tries to push it back on the Jewish people. He said, this is one of your, one of your people. He's Jewish. You go and you take responsibility. But they reminded him, hey, we've just tried him all night long, and we say he's guilty, and only you officially can condemn a man to die. So that avenue didn't work. The second thing he tried to do was to send Jesus to Herod. Now, Herod was the specific local king of Judea. 
And so there were some conflicts and issues between Pilate and Herod anyway, but Pilate thinks, if I can push this off on Herod, I can get out of making the decision. So he sends him to Herod, who questions Jesus, but takes no action and actually sends him back to Pilate. So that avenue doesn't work. The third thing Pilate tries to get out of this decision is to let the people decide what would be more loving and more, uh, you know, uh, condescending than to let the people decide. And he had established a tradition during the Passover time to release one prisoner to the people. So he offered to release someone, and he chose probably the worst choice he could make, a man named Barabbas, a man who was probably already scheduled to die that day anyway on the cross, a man who was a thief and a murderer, and he brought the two before the people and said, which one do you choose? Assuming, of course, they would choose to let this, this Jewish rabbi go and set Barabbas on the cross. But instead, they chose to set Barabbas free. And I think that spoke a lot to Pilate. He could not understand the depth of their hatred for this innocent man. I think he has one more way to try to save Jesus' life. And that was, what if I just punish him a lot? What if I really make, make him hurt and suffer? Maybe then they'll let him go. And so he ordered Jesus to be flogged. The flogging was a serious whipping. It was a beating that was meant to punish, but not to kill an individual. And so he ordered his soldiers to bring Jesus in to flog him. He was beaten. The soldiers put a purple robe on him, a crown of thorns. They bowed to Jesus and mocked him. They took a, a stick and hit him on the head with this crown of thorns and, and, until he bled. And so Jesus was a bloody mess. And I'm sure Pilate thought, surely this will be enough. But the more he did to Jesus, the more they cried for his blood. They cried for him to be crucified. And in fact, at this point, they pulled a political card and they threatened to report Pilate to the Caesar. So finally, Pilate gives in and symbolically he calls for a basin of water. And there, in public view, he washes his hands, symbolically saying, his blood is not on my hands, and yet he sentenced Jesus to die. And it was at that point that Jesus was scourged. This was the beating, this was the whipping that was many times designed not only to punish someone, but even to kill them or to actually speed their death if they were let off to be crucified. This was done with a whip that was tipped with bits of stone and glass and, uh, and metal, and it just ripped the flesh from the body, sometimes exposing organs, and, and oftentimes people died with the scourging itself. And so Jesus endured that, and he was let off to be crucified. You know, today is traditionally Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem just a few days before the record we have now, the, the trial with Pilate is assumed to have been uh, conducted early on Friday morning before he was crucified later that, that morning. You know, in looking back at this time, it seems so distant to us and so disconnected. But I believe that Pilate's decision in that day is very much the same as ours. What will you do with Jesus? You see, your decision as to what you do with Jesus is every bit as important as Pilate's. Like him, maybe you know the right thing to do. If you've taken any time to listen to the evidence of Jesus and the claims of Christ, you've got to believe that Jesus really was who he said. And on this side of the cross, we know it for sure, don't we? But maybe like Pilate, you struggle with the right thing to do, the moral decision to make. Maybe you know the right thing, but you struggle to make it, to really make that decision. Maybe you're fearful of other people. What would people say if I were to do this? 
What will the decision for Christ say about how I've been living my life to this point? Will it really imply that I've been wrong at to, to this place in life? And what would a decision for Christ require of me? All these are going through Pilate's mind. What if I do this? What if I set him free? What will happen to me? And maybe you're wondering, what if I say Jesus truly is the Son of God and I accept him as my Lord and Savior? What will happen to me now? What will that require of me for the moment or in the future? What will it look like? And I think Pilate was so close to a decision for Christ. This inner voice inside was saying, this is truly who he is. And maybe you have the same voice in your mind telling you who Jesus is and how you should decide. But unfortunately, Pilate listened to the other voices around them, their pressure, and it rejected who Jesus is. You know, history tells us that it didn't end well with Pilate. In fact, shortly after this, Pilate lost this position that he was trying so desperately to hold. He was called to Rome to answer questions and complaints, probably from the very Jewish leaders that he had tried so hard on this occasion to appease. And some people say that, that Pilate was condemned and banished from Rome and later committed suicide. Whatever happened to him, Pilate failed to take a firm stand for what he knew was right. You know, the Bible calls this being double-minded. The Pilate wanted to do the right thing, but he didn't have the courage to do so. And in this snapshot of him, we see him so desperate looking at several options. How can I avoid making a decision? I look to the Jews. I look to Herod. I look to the people. But ultimately, it was his decision to make, and he made the wrong one. He just did not look to see who Jesus really was. The more I think of this, the more I see how this relates to our world today, because we're looking around us, aren't we? We're looking for answers. We're looking for hope. We're living in very uncertain times, unlike any that we've ever lived in and ever experienced. For us, our entire lives are really put on hold as we wait for the end of this virus thing. Nobody could have imagined, none of us, how something like this would play out and how it could impact and affect our daily lives and change the way we interact with people. We soak up the news and, and information. We want to know how long this is really going to last. How many people are really sick right now? How many have died? Many of us will not miss a 5 o'clock broadcast from our governor hoping for good news. We all wonder how this is going to impact our economy, how it's going to affect our personal income, our family, our community, our health, our future. We anxiously wait to hear, is there going to be a cure? Is there going to be a vaccine? Many of us are thinking, could this just be a bad dream that we're going to wake up from and, and it never really happens? And then we're told, you know what, the worst is yet to come. To be honest with you, that can be kind of discouraging as we face that kind of news every day. And we're all looking for hope, and many of us don't know where to look for hope. Guys, today, I want to direct your eyes and encourage you to look to Jesus. I want to encourage you to look to him because he is the hope of the world. Jesus is always the answer, no matter what the question is or the issue. A lot of us are questioning, you know, why are we going through this? And for that you know, reason, why is there illness? Why is there suffering? Why is there death? We're looking for hope. We're looking for answers. And I would encourage you to look straight at Jesus in the middle of this. No, we don't know the answers, but we know where to look for them. And that is to Jesus Christ. He is always the answer. Because Jesus was given to us by God and was lifted up by God to be the answer for all of us. You know, a couple days ago, or a few days ago, I was 
reading through the scripture, and I'm reading in the Old Testament now, and there was a story in Numbers chapter 21 that came to me that struck me in this moment that might be some encouragement to us. It's a story about the people of Israel in the wilderness wandering many years before Jesus came to earth. And I want to pick up that story and read a few verses from Numbers 21. It says, the people traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us out of this Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses, and they said, we have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It's an amazing story. I don't know if you've ever read that story or not. But, but the people of Israel, you know, they, they were just focused on anything and everything but God. They were focused on their inconvenience and their, their struggle. They were complaining and rebelling against God. To punish them, God sent venomous snakes throughout the camp that bit them and killed many of them. And when the people realized that their, uh, their sin, they repented and they, and they came back and they sought forgiveness. And Moses prayed and God led him to make a snake of bronze put it up on a pole for the people to look for for healing. Now, what's interesting is that the the snake on the pole actually is still the symbol for medical services. I don't know if you ever noticed that. It's a snake on a pole. Kind of fascinating that goes back to that day. But it's a really fascinating story. But I think what's even more fascinating is that Jesus goes back in his day when he's teaching And he uses this redemptive story to explain his purpose in coming to earth. In John chapter 3, in a passage that contains the most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, it says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man may be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Guys, if you are distracted by the snake being compared to Jesus in this story, I want you to know this story is a simile, which is a comparison that's not perfect in every detail. But the story is true and accurate because the snake was lifted up. The bronze serpent was the only way for the people to find healing in that day. And in the same way, Jesus is the only way for salvation for the lost. If the people refuse to look at the snake, they died. And if people refuse to look to Jesus, they're going to be lost and they're going to die spiritually. As the serpent was lifted up, so was Jesus lifted up. First of all, on the cross and then in resurrection. And then in his ascension back to heaven, and now Jesus is to be lifted up. We lift Jesus every day. We lift him up in worship. We lift him up in praise, as we've done just a little earlier. We'll do again in a few moments. We lift him up in preaching. We proclaim the the name of Jesus. We lift Jesus up in our everyday lives. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 12, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Our job is to lift Jesus up. 
in the way we live our lives, our conversation, in every way, we want to lift Jesus up so that people can see him. So the solution and the answer to all of our issues today is to look to Jesus and to see who Jesus really is. Pilate never recognized who Jesus was. If he had his choice, his decision would have been much different. And today, if we see Jesus for who he is, our decision will be to accept him as Lord and Savior. That's the best thing we can do today, and it's the best thing we can advise other people to do as well. You know, i got to be honest with you. I don't understand everything that's going on now and certainly didn't see it coming, but I'm praying that God will use this current situation and that it will lead to revival. What I've noticed is that when people go through crisis, they come to realize that they're not able to control everything on their own. Most of us feel very much out of control. We, we don't have any control over today, tomorrow, you know, what we can do and can't do. We're, we're, we're powerless. And that's what it takes for us to come to, to realize that we need God. So my prayer is that all this is going to lead us to revival, that believers will repent. The Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will, will humble themselves and reach out and pray, then I will hear their prayers and I will heal their land. Isn't that what we long for? Healing. So whatever the reason for this is, God has a purpose that can be accomplished, and that is for revival to come to our earth, to come to our lives. I pray that believers will repent. Every one of us need to hit our knees and repent of our sin. I pray that unbelievers will look to Jesus, look to him as we hold him up, and that Jesus will be lifted up and will draw all people to himself. Guys, that's the answer that the world is longing for. That's what they're looking for in the middle of all this. And all creation is groaning for it. It's not just this virus. It's everything. When you look at the news, it's, it's earthquakes and, and wars and, and locusts. And, you know, it's everything around our world. Creation is groaning for a return to the Lord. And only, us can, only we can decide that. It begins in our lives. Let's begin praying for revival. Let's begin repenting of our own sins. Let's understand where it all has to go back to, and that is to Jesus. When I was reading an article this morning, and I've heard this whole uh, theory laid out before, but researchers are desperately trying to find a cure for the virus. And currently, they are taking blood from those people who have recovered from the illness. It's a very common way for them to create a vaccine is to take the blood from someone who has had the illness and who has overcome it and gotten well because that blood is rich in antibiotics to treat those who are ill. And you know, really, that is the story of Jesus when you think about it, that Jesus came to our earth. He took on the curse of humanity, and yet he was perfect, and he overcame that. Jesus came to our earth, and he became human, and because he was human, he experienced death, but he overcame that. So we need to borrow from the blood of an overcomer, and that is Jesus Christ, and he will give us hope, and he will give us life. He is the one that we look to. He is the one that we lift up. So we lift Jesus high this morning. This morning, we're going to go to a time of communion, and I want to encourage you in your home uh, hopefully, you've set apart some symbols, a piece of bread and a cup of juice that you'll be sharing with us in this communion time. And we're going to lift Jesus up right now and in a moment through our time of communion. And I'm going to lead you through that, actually, so you can go ahead and get those. But, but let me just say this. If you have not given your life to Christ, 
I would love to have that conversation with you. We can have it by phone. We can have an appropriate distance apart. We can do that. This is the most important thing. More important than any, any physical illness you might have is that you understand that all of us are cursed with the illness of, of sin and that only Jesus can take that away from us. So I'd love to have that conversation with, with you and help that you understand and help you come to a relationship in Him. Right now, I'm going to ask if you would, if you have the emblems available, I've, I've taken some, set them aside. I want to ask if you would to take this piece of bread and the cup of juice, and in a moment, we'll take them together. Just now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, even though we are separate in, in our physical uh, positions, God, we are one in your spirit. God, we invite you to come into our life. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. And in our mind's eye, we see Jesus lifted high on the cross, taking the curse for us, the punishment for us. But we know that that isn't where it all ends. The story doesn't end at the cross. The story continues to be played, but it, the triumph and the climax is the resurrection of Jesus. So, Lord, we take this, acknowledging the death of Jesus, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for us on the cross. And, Lord, we do this in remembrance of him and anticipation of his resurrection and of our resurrection as well. Father, we thank you for these emblems. We take them in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would just now to take the piece of bread, symbol of the body of Christ broken for us, and take it in remembrance of him. Now, if you would, take the cup of juice, take it in remembrance of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross. Let's share it together.